We have to hold ourselves, I think, as people who organize, as people who have a care about the future of society and our neighbors to the highest standard and not just take shortcuts when the power is really close. I'm Damon. I'm Daniel. And welcome to Climate Change Makers, presented by Elevate Energy. For 20 years, Elevate Energy has been building equity through climate action by improving quality of life for underserved communities, helping them save money, improve their environment, and access opportunities in the workforce that will be part of tackling climate change. As they move into the next decade of their work, they're looking to learn from their fellow community members who are equitably transforming the environmental legacy of their homes, neighborhoods, cities, and futures, and they brought in the two of us to help. We host a weekly radio show and podcast called Ergo here in Chicago, where we interview artists, organizers, people reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. So over these five podcast episodes, we're talking with some of Illinois' most impactful environmental justice visionaries, people who've been working to build a more equitable and sustainable world, and we're going to be exploring what ideas guide their work, which strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate Energy as the organization works to put people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. This episode's guest is Juliana Pino. Juliana is the policy director at the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, or El Vejo, where she analyzes, researches, and advocates for environmental justice, climate justice, and economic justice in local, state, and federal environmental policy. In 2017, Juliana was recognized in Midwest Energy News 40 Under 40 for her work in the transition to a clean energy economy as lead negotiator for low-income programs in the 2016 Future Energy Jobs Act. She currently serves on the board of directors of the Illinois Environmental Council, a statewide organization that promotes sound environmental policy and protections for land, air, water, wildlife, and human health. Juliana is as dynamic as she is brilliant. She spends a lot of her time going back and forth to state legislators, county bodies, as well as the city government. Uh, But she, with us, spent much more time being an educator, sharing with us the work that's happening on the ground and like the larger shift in consciousness we need to center the most marginalized people who are being affected by climate catastrophes. As we always do, we start this conversation with Juliana with a two-part question. In this time, this moment, this season, how is the world treating her and how is she treating the world? Y'all always like to go very deep with the first question, which I'm here for 100%. How is the world treating me? I mean, I think I'm seeing some really beautiful uh, spaces where community is really rising up and supporting folks who are going through it. My family, we have had a lot going on and folks are really uh, doing the most to check in. Mm. And that just feels like a very classic solid, grounded, and wonderful thing to see because it's a reminder of like, we only make it through if we're being good to community and Mm. if our people are being good to us. Those little like threads of like, hey, you good, actually make a huge difference in at least how I perceive the world to be sort of around me. Um, And then there's the world's sort of broader scope, which is rife with stress and problems and injustice and deep oppression and I, th- I think on that front, we still have millennia to go, Yeah, you know, yeah. but it's those small connections with people who love us and who we love that really sustain us, I think, through yeah. these periods of extreme stress and isolation. Yeah. So it's sort of it's it's both things, right? Like outside of closeness, the world is really stressful right now. I think folks are on edge, a lot of uncertainty about the future. And uncertainty about how the future will come down hard in a racialized and classed way um, in the way that the present is, you know, and there hasn't been enough to mitigate that. Right. So I think both things are existing in sort of tension with each other, but I've been very fortunate to feel like folks are holding us down Mm. and really checking in at a time that's that's really helpful for them Mm. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you started to speak towards it or allude towards it Mm -hmm. in in, in a sense, but that was mostly like in the social and like the political, Mm -hmm. like the human sense Mm -hmm. of the world. In terms of like the natural, physical, Mm -hmm. biological world, Mm -hmm. how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world in this time? Great remix. Um, I think, (laughs) I think, you know, Let's be clear. Like, let's let's establish one thing. Climate change is real. Uh, oh, no, this again, is a truther podcast. <laughs> you know, I'm saying we've seen yet again an unseasonably warm winter. Mm-hmm. 
um, that has lots of consequences, I think, that we need to be mindful of. We saw beaches destroyed in Chicago that we're not going to get back, right? Important public community spaces, where those spaces are in neighborhoods that don't have as many resources, that are not as well connected. Like, are they going to be repaired? Are these public spaces going to be restored, I think, is is a big question coming out of this winter. We see without the winter getting super cold, in the same way that it needed to as often or for as long, what happens to mosquito populations? What is the consequence for diseases, right? Who gets diseases and who gets treated for those? Mm. Um, you know, we're in that moment right now with COVID-19 and the coronavirus, right? With the public health infrastructure responding in all of these different countries. I think disease response in general and the relationship to climate change is something we have to think through, right? Yeah. The flu and um, coronavirus and other kinds of really thriving and cold weather timing, um, you know, contagious diseases. Folks, climatologists are like, we don't know what the impact is going to be right. of the warming climate on some of these things. Are they just simply going to adapt and, right. and thrive mm. in some warm places as some of them are right now? Um, and I think that there are these like real realities that like every season that passes and we see the, the, the instability just sort of accelerate. I think it's less and less possible for people feeling the real consequences on the ground to sort of say, this is something I don't have to think about. We saw major changes in agriculture this last year, huge impacts on our food supplies. What does that mean for folks who are even just like folks on the Southeast side trying to grow, you know, they're having to adjust their planning constantly, right? It's not the same as it was five, 10 years ago where people could plan way in advance, not have to overwinter crops, not have to sort of think through, all right, if we're going to try and supply the community with these tomatoes, right? Like, what does it mean for the tomato growing season for the climate to constantly be moving around on us? Um, And so there are real implications, I think, for food justice, food sovereignty, community health, lots of consequences, I think, in terms of the natural cycles that we live with, what we can anticipate in terms of weather. Um, You know, some of the things that we saw were like extreme heat, Mm -hmm. extreme cold events this past year. That's a problem, right? Especially for folks who don't have enough money who are struggling to afford their heating and cooling bills. That's a time when I get concerned when the city goes into a deep freeze. It's like, okay, folks who are street-based, people who don't have housing or who have a lot of difficulty, right, keeping the lights on. Um, We have laws preventing heat from being turned off. Mm -hmm. We don't have laws around air conditioning, for example. Mm -hmm. We don't have laws around water. Mm -hmm. There are other like really essential to surviving some of these extreme heat or cold events, Uh, resources that we don't have protections for folks on the books about because our protections exist from a time period when we didn't have to think about climate change and how extreme Mm. some of these seasons would be. So that deeply intersects with how do we support folks to navigate these times? It's like if we're thinking about the folks who are the most impacted, we're thinking about vulnerable elders, we're thinking about young people, right, without a roof over their heads, and we should be preparing in advance as if these things are going to keep becoming more episodic and more extreme. Otherwise, it's not going to be possible for us to really ensure the full survivability of everybody in the community, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the folks who are the most stable, who have the most gigs, right, who Mm -hmm. have the most, like, reliable income are the folks who are going to make it through regardless of anything else. Um, And and we really need to be getting back to a place where it's like, okay, folks who can't afford it need to be centered in terms of what our strategies are for mitigating some of these events. Yeah. So I, I had a joke, but it got way too real. <laughs> no, it's too not good. good. <laughs> so I'm about to keep that in my back pocket. So what I'm hearing is the deep need for adaptability mm-hmm. and an understanding of the fact that not every person and community can adapt equally because of access absolutely. to resources or just the particularities of a person's life. That's absolutely um, right. So from a from a policy work perspective, and you mentioned that there are laws on the books around heat, but not around these other needs, or there's... Uh, ways that the the conversations around policy need to adapt to this ever-changing, ever-unstable reality. What have been some strategies that you've seen either your own work or other people that you're in partnership with uh, taking to really forefront, like, hey, this isn't we need to make one perfect rule. Mm-hmm. This is that we need to be willing to adapt and respond to our environment the way people who are paying attention to the environment should have been doing the way, all along. The way life works. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's in my view, we have to have some things that are just like baseline rules because we can't assume that every entity is a perfect entity who's going to be acting in the best interests of the public, especially folks who are the most vulnerable in the mm-hmm. public. We have to have baseline rules to hold people accountable. Like mm-hmm. that is like in my mind, like the law works best when it's used to hold entities with a lot of power accountable. Right. 
um, there are ways in which the law is really messed up and is used to sort of target vulnerable people. But the ways in which we need to use the law, I think, are to figure out what strategies can we use to hold these powerful entities accountable so that people who are the most vulnerable have some protection, right. have some rights, have some basis upon which to argue like, yo, you can't do that to me. Mm -hmm. um, that's the place where we need to overlay a climate change lens over that. Mm -hmm. And we do that work a lot in environmental justice when it comes to big industry and big polluters, right? We think about, you know, the laws in Chicago. I think folks may be aware by now, but like the way our zoning and planning works, right, concentrates industrial actors in specific neighborhoods. Those neighborhoods are stuck then fighting one by one all of these different industries, whether they be metal shredders, like what's going on in the Southeast side with General Iron, which mm -hmm. was a company that merged with a Southeast side company and are moving from Lincoln Park, where mm -hmm. the city has put Lincoln Yards, right. down to the Southeast side, where they're already dealing with four different metal shredders on yeah. a nearby site that are out of compliance with the rules, mm -hmm. right? And so in that case, you have community fighting, existing facilities, being a receiving area. That's literally what the, what the city law says, by the way. Being a receiving area for these companies leaving the north side industrial areas and are like fighting each one one by one. So one yeah. tack that we need to take is we need to address these sort of baseline laws that are supposed to be used to hold these powerful actors accountable and to repair the holes in those laws that have been put there strategically, I think, to take advantage of people with perceived less power, right? Communities of color, low-income communities on the South Side um, who are literally targeted right. for these kinds of uses of land, uh, you know, based on the perception that people won't fight back, that in fact, you know, under the the guise of we're preserving manufacturing, I argue there are ways to do that that don't trample on people's livelihoods and life expectancy. Right. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, communities in Chicago and elsewhere who are the most impacted by these issues, um, you know, they're most impacted by pollution. They're the most impacted by climate vulnerability. The same communities that are targeted in these ways are also neglected in terms of resilience, right? They're not getting green infrastructure. Right. That's meaningful for folks. They're not getting input into how do we prevent flooding, right? And all of these things, which I'll note in communities that are polluted, has much more devastating mm. consequences than in communities that aren't polluted, right? I think I get, but can you different explain Different neighborhoods what that have yeah. different levels of pollution in the soil mm -hmm. and in the streets. When that soil floods, right. what are you getting in people's basements, wow. right? Not just you're water, not just you're getting, getting regular old sewage. You're also getting benzene. You're also getting PAHs. You're also yeah. getting all of these chemicals that are coming off of industrial facilities that aren't remediated or that do hazardous things that, that are, quote, permitted to do. Mm. And then the neighborhood is like trying to empty their basement with buckets, and you're knee-deep in toxic water, yeah. right? Blood water is already toxic, but you just, like, turn that volume up to 11, and you and you see the kinds of things that neighborhoods are exposed to. And so on the south and southwest sides, this is hugely consequential as climate change accelerates. Hmm. And neighbors in all of these communities are the ones who already know what they're dealing with. They already know what the holes in the laws are, right. and they already have the solutions that the city should be implementing to fix some of these things. Right. But it ultimately takes empowering decision-making so that community members can actually have a voice in what happens and using that to fix the problems of the law that is allowing you know, climate change to not be addressed in a meaningful way that's driven by communities that are most impacted and pollution, which contributes to climate change, not being addressed in a meaningful way by yeah. the communities that are most impacted. Mm. It really replicates a lot of other social issues in that folks are like, hey, over here, we're the ones who've been living with this for our entire lives in these neighborhoods. Like we can tell you this company, this company, that company are doing these things at these times. And that kind mm. of data, that kind of input, there's no formal mechanism to incorporate that. Instead, the processes hire independent consultants. And they do these, these they studies. They do these studies, yeah. right, that like don't necessarily lead to justice for communities when the community members are literally fighting to just observe things. I'll yeah. give you an example from Little Village Landale High School. Incredible AP statistics class, young people who were realizing that right by their high school, they're getting tons of semi-trucks, diesel semi-trucks. Mm -hmm. They start a project with um, some of my coworkers at the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization to do truck counting. And so they're out mm. there counting. Yeah. Every time a diesel truck passes by, at that time, is there a pedestrian? What kinds of other things are happening? Is it a young person, yeah. right, that they can guess at? And they're counting just extreme, extreme levels of trucks at these intersections. 
And all of this is in the context of the city purporting to modernize our industrial corridor plan for Little right. Village. And this is the one of the first few of the ones that they were going to roll out through the rest of the industrial corridors. That process has been sort of paused. Mm. We got it to halt in Little Village, and the youth were collecting these truck counts, collecting these truck counts, bring that up in that context and say, we need a formal truck count. Like, you look at this data. Like, this is really right. bad. Why haven't right. we had anybody out here being like, this is unacceptable level of diesel pollution. You're putting us at risk right. in all these other safety ways. The city hadn't done a truck study in that part of the city for 25 years plus. Right. So if those young people basically hadn't counted those numbers, nobody was going to count those numbers. Right. And now the city and and the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning, CMAP, have said, okay, now we're going to do a truck study. Mm-hmm. Cool. We're going to do a truck study. They put out the request for proposals. That request for proposals is like, let me get a consultant to do this. There's no role at all in sure. that process for community members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zero amount. So then we had to organize to be like, you all ignore ignoring the hard work, years of work by all these young people who've put right. on, put in this data. Clearly, you agree mm-hmm. that something needs to be studied here. Yet, you're completely ignoring the reason for why this is happening. And that's totally unacceptable, right? Yeah. Because actually, who knows the best what happens at that intersection right outside their high school? The young people that go to that high school. Yeah. Yeah. You know yeah, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Nobody should argue with that. Yeah. Yet, there's, they're structurally excluded from participating in a meaningful way. Yeah. I want to link in there because... I kind of need to ground myself in this mm-hmm. conversation and that story of the students. Shout out to them mm-hmm. also. That's shout out. Just that's super amazing. Really incredible uh, young people. Yeah, we need to make sure that that's covered and amplified. Um, I want to do what you were pivoting towards, like ground and movement work mm-hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. because I think it's important that we center and name the harms mm-hmm. and then we allow that naming process to be how we drive our structural and legislative approaches, right? Yes. So, so I'm really eager to learn some of that. But you know, I even want to check my own sense of despair as <laughs> like this whole conversation mm-hmm. series um, is aimed to speak towards some of those dynamics. So I want to kind of parallel from like my position of mm-hmm. this movement against environmental violence and industrial violence mm-hmm. and how it is intersected and, and also parallel to like movements against carceral violence mm-hmm. and militarism. What I try to do right, Mm -hmm. is stand in the power Mm -hmm. of the people and, like, name that there is so much going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, like, the list of all of the companies that I didn't even know existed, but then I hear them and they sound really big. Mm -hmm. And then, like, the fights of, like, the lobbying and all of that, Mm -hmm. like, it feels large. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I always say we have to ground ourselves in in, in the people and in the work. Um, But, you know, the police department is a thing, right? It's an institution. Mm-hmm. There are people, um, you know, poison is in the air, like, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it just feels so much larger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for you, somebody who's so deeply committed and so connected to the work, what in these movement spaces um, is really exciting for you? And what does the outlook feel like for the next one to five years in that realm? Yes. I mean, there's so much. I've, I just got so excited. Okay, good, uh, good, good, good. There's so much. <laughs> I think there's just really, really incredible hyper-local work happening where mm-hmm. folks know what the stakes are, are taking the future into their own hands and are just really trying to build from the ground up. Okay, we know this other stuff is going to be taking a long time. We need to mitigate harm now. Let's Hmm. make that happen. And let's exercise self-determination and sovereignty as much as we can in the place that we are, you know, recognizing, of course, that all land that we're on now is indigenous land, right? And that mm-hmm. most of the people that we're talking about here are people who entered through slavery, through immigration, and through other means and aren't the original people of this land. So sovereignty, I think, is a complicated concept in that way. Yeah. But really, it's about, like, what what is the choice of the person in the space, in the community in which they're invested in? How much does choice get exercised over the future. So there's just really, really cool work going on. I think the work that young people are doing just on participatory science is really badass, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, we can't wait for these big companies to come and and give us data. Like we are observers, we're direct observers of the natural and social systems that we're in and we get to make observations. Mm -hmm. Like that's really powerful to me. Mm -hmm. Just exerting the right to observe and to come to an analysis on your own, I think is something that our young people should absolutely be positioned to do, but are told constantly, right? Their perspective isn't valid. Like you can't establish a pattern out of this. Like what does that actually mean for the quote real world as if the world that young people live in is not the real world, (laughs) you know, and all these things that are dismissive. And yet I see young people just over and over again saying like, we know this is happening. We care about this. You know, we had a bunch of um, a bunch of young people really interested in working on lead and water issues, 
And they went door to door, right, to talk to their neighbors to just be like, yo, do you know that this is an issue in our part of the city? Like, what do you know about it? Here's some filters that we worked on getting for you. Like, this is how you use them. And they just like took it into their own hands. You know what I mean? They just they found out about the issue and they were like, we care about this. We're going to do something like we don't we need to wait for these other people to try and pass a law. Right. And yet we still need to do all that passing of the laws. But in the meantime, people taking things into their own hands is absolutely appropriate and, fo- and and creating space for folks to find the agency to do that, I think, is like the number one thing that movements should do. It's like mm-hmm. to how do we create spaces where people exercise the most agency over their future? Mm-hmm. And so those those things are super exciting. Also, just like major shout out to the senoras and the intergenerational work happening in Little Village around food justice and food sovereignty. Mm-hmm. People be out here just doing the most. <laughs> and it's so incredible. Now, Semillas de Justicia, the community garden, supporting 40 plus families to yeah. feed themselves every year. Soon and very soon. And I won't spoiler the announcement, but you know, there's going to be some expanding of that work. Wow. Folks are interested in doing commercial scale growing mm. and stuff that's really, really incredible. What's the name of the farm? Semillas de Justicia, Seeds of Justice. Um, And so a shout out to Viviana Moreno, who listeners may know, who's been really leading on that work. Um, Really incredible, incredible stuff there, I think, just where people have, you know, they came from Mexico, many of these folks, coming in with a specific cultural context and set of skills uh, that were immediately devalued as soon as they got here, right? Mm -hmm. I think things might be coming full circle where folks might be soon positioned to actually enact some of those skills that are Mm -hmm. so meaningful to them on the land to serve their community Mm -hmm. in a way that's really beautiful. And to link it back to carceral justice, the other thing that really strikes me about this is Semillas de Justicia is right by the La Vita Park. Mm-hmm. And La Vita Park, if folks may not be aware of it, was at the time of its construction, it might still be, the largest brownfield to park conversion in North America. Brownfield being a former industrial site yeah. where the land is polluted. This was actually even upscaled from a brownfield to a super fund, which meant that it was on the list of the most toxic sites in the United States. It's a list held by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. That's one of the most like uh, Orwellian namings of a thing. Right? It's a super yeah. fund. And it's the reason, like, the reason it's, it's going to take a super fund of money <laughs> right, to remediate, exactly. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a it's an incredible like many many year struggle yeah. twenty three years if we're being technical about that mm. to fight the polluters who polluted that park and to get them to remediate you know Semillas itself is also on a site where the polluters who polluted that site uh, deliberately repolluted it even before <laughs> it got cleaned up mm. um, to try and sabotage the plans it was a lot of struggle right to get yeah. that garden to get the park. And it's in the shadow of Cook County Jail. So the park abuts the jail. So if you're in the park, you're right behind the jail and you see the jail. Mm. And one of the struggles during the time that that park was remediated was fighting the Department of Corrections over their vision for that jail adjacent site, which was to put a giant parking lot there, uh, to not have anything for the folks who were incarcerated to look out onto other than like concrete um, and to not sort of engage in what is the future of this land overall? Why aren't these folks being prioritized? And it was really young people who were like, they deserve to have like as much of their future considered. Like this site needs to be cleaned up, not just because of the neighbors and the houses, but also the folks who were incarcerated right. who are being exposed to this pollution too, right? right. Um, yeah, those and, are still human beings in there. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, no, 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 we'd like to build more jail, please. That's what we're <laughs> exactly. going to put on this site. Right, yeah, no, it's, yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really something. And, you know, the jail takes up 96 acres in the neighborhood. And even with the addition of the park, we have about twice as much land in Little Village dedicated to incarceration of black and brown bodies as we have places that are green that folks can recreate in. Just to give you a sense, even with the addition of the park, Little Village still has the lowest green space per capita of any community. And one thing that's really interesting to me about the food justice and food sovereignty work that's really exciting is a lot of folks don't know, but prior to the construction of the jail, that was actually an agricultural site Mm. that was owned by the company International Harvester and uh, black and brown bodies were farm workers on that land. You were just educating me and breaking my heart. Just like harvesting, (laughs) right? So just like, like it was a site used Uh. for like, like taking from the land, right. black and brown bodies, taking from them and their labor and exploiting right. in many ways through the Bracero program, through um, getting black and in particular Mexican-American workers, <sighs> applying themselves on that land and then exploiting their labor. Right. And then in, in, in the construction of the jail, right? It's just like 
a different version of the same thing where now you're, again, devaluing black and brown bodies. In this case, you're incarcerating them. You're exploiting the system, getting money from folks. Extracting from them. Extracting from them. Yeah. Um, It just made me cry. And so (laughs) if you imagine, you know, the park and the the, like community-based growing work to be done right adjacent to there and expanding potentially into the park, the like contra- the real contrast right. there is just incredible to me about like what communities have been able to come together to do yeah. in spite of the like persistent violence like from polluters from the state that says your bodies are worthless we can kill you slowly or quickly depending on what strategy we choose right, right. do we shoot you or do we pollute you mm-hmm. yeah. and like you don't you don't have a choice in that and in this in this scenario it's like an intergenerational effort to have agency in the literal shadow yeah. of that system. And standing in the park, you can also see the coal plant, right, that the yeah. community shut down. Um, and and the park is also the site, I should say, of a program called Mi Parque that young people came up with in the neighborhood that uses restorative justice and alternatives to policing to promote a different kind of environment in the park itself. So it's mm. like, let's avoid engaging with police. Let's figure out how to de-escalate and resolve conflicts ourselves. And let's like keep this space clean ourselves because the city doesn't give the park its own budget yet. The bathrooms aren't open year round. And it's clearly a space that community has decided like we want to hold this down despite the state, in spite of what folks have said is valuable or isn't valuable about us. We're going to make decisions and and act agency in a space that historically, right, the ground under those spaces was sort of an originating place for this kind of exploitation and that was on top of the violence done to indigenous right. people to access well, that land. Well, right. that was, I thought about the land before the jail was built. It, goes, it actually goes to something that Damon has said and really has stuck with me. I love quoting you on the show. It's one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> I love it when you do it. But, so the, the, like, the logics of domination that were enacted on the land by settler colonialism then became the logics that were enacted on other people, right? That's right. If you can justify doing it to the land, then you can justify doing it to other people. So that's what's so beautiful about this reclamation, right? Is that it begins at the root quite literally. If where that logic begins is in that domination of the actual soil and the root systems and then builds to the people, it's like, well, our reclamation will have to start at the same place and work up. Because, you you know, if that's what we're trying to do is repair that harm, got to repair where the harm begins. And not just the logic, but the power and the processes of oppression are all rooted in the domination of land. That's right. There could not be a refugee or immigration crisis if it wasn't for the domination of nation state formations, right? That's right. There could not be slavery. There could not be slave trades. There couldn't even be gender oppression. If we didn't have the land constructs that we had. That's right. I mean, there could be, but not in the way <laughs> that. Not in the same form. <laughs> yeah. Not in the same form. The, the ones that we have yeah. only exist rooted and fundamentally sourced That's from right. our, hum, our human land relations. That's right. And That's right. the idea that this is our place of dominion. Whew. Yeah. Circling back to climate change. Yes. I mean, that's another thing <laughs> that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of strategies to survive and mitigate, right? Mm-hmm. Folks in community have been doing the most to manage for themselves. I was curious, what are what some the consequences of those, are? not policy, but interpersonal and communal methods of, of approaching that uh, and protecting from that harm? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's stuff around like how to make sure folks have heating, cooling, lighting in some ways in defiance of like yeah. what's legal or otherwise authorized by the state, um, pooling resources in ways that like our billing systems don't account for, Mm -hmm. um, I think is one really important thing to note, making sure folks have food. You know, in Little Village, we're extremely rich, I would say, in our food environment in ways that a lot of other neighborhoods are not. Um, So that's something to consider, right? How do people, especially where they don't have access to food in cases where you know, you're in extreme cold, extreme heat. Um, how do y'all figure out how to build with each other in that space, I think is something that folks have been cross-neighborhood talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really exciting, incredible work. Yeah. Um, there's also just checking in on each other. Mm-hmm. And that that dovetails a lot with um, networks that have also been built around immigration defense. Yeah. Um, because there's this way in which, you know, you can get really isolated neighbor to neighbor And there's this return to let's double down on who lives on my block. Who are the elders on my block? Who are the really young people on my block? Where exactly is everybody? (laughs) And how do we, if something goes down, 
get a hold of everyone? Yeah. Um, how do we show up for each other and check in on each other? Just like physical, like how do I take my my like body and go to my friend's place who can't get out of their home and support them to make it through, right? right. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of like micro strategies are actually so crucial to surviving mm. situations like the ones that we will inevitably be faced with. Yeah. Um, and that's true when it comes to diseases too, like coronavirus, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking about how do you prepare to support the neighbors that have the least resources to actually mitigate some of the really intense consequences coming yeah. our way? Um, and I think it's just really incredible to see folks like really rising up and yeah. doing that, you know, um, already, already thinking that way, already banding together. I think that that's something that's super special. One thing I've been thinking about a lot is the intersection of these strategies with how do we support folks who are currently incarcerated through yeah. moments like this. Um, you saw with the coronavirus, for example, in Iran, they temporarily released tens of thousands of folks who were incarcerated to essentially protect their public health, right. um, which is very interesting, wow. right? Because you don't hear that in the U.S., right? No, like, what about, not. like, Seattle? <laughs> You're not hearing it out of Seattle where there's, right. like, a major outbreak. How are we supporting folks who are incarcerated in Seattle to navigate yeah. exposure to situations yeah. like this when we know something is highly contagious, right? The same Ooh. is true for, for climate change-related incidents where you had Hurricane Sandy in New York. Yeah. Um, you had folks who were just trapped on Rikers Island, right. um, there was not a plan for them mm-hmm. with Hurricane Katrina, right? Well, that, that was one of the first major instances injury. we saw this where people were just trapped. And that's mm. a completely unethical, inhumane way to deal with climate. We know what works. We know that community to community support works. We know that there are ways to have plans in place to actually address people who are incarcerated as human beings as they yeah. are and to protect their rights when things like this happen. Um, and On top of that, I think about the fact that we were talking about flooding, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of prisons and jails have been built on toxic land that was unremediated. If little villages hit with a storm and homes flood, what happens when there's that kind of a weather event? And how is Cook County Jail going to deal with that? There's not a plan. (laughs) And so that's those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about is like the community already knows. They're like, my cousins, my brothers, my siblings are up in there. We know that, like, we're going to need to support each other, but the way that the state is constructed, right. the carceral system, there's, like, a literal series of walls, physical, right. metaphysical, mm-hmm. that prevent people from enacting these very community strategies that work mm-hmm. right. outside of prisons and jails to support people in prisons and jails, right? right. Who are having to organize themselves to fight for their rights right. to say, like— yo, if we get another situation like this, like what's going to happen to me? Right. And so those are some of the things I'm thinking about. It's like the beauty in the way that community is rising up for each other and around each other is really incredible. And we have so much work to do while we abolish the carceral justice and immigration and deportation detention systems to bridge, like how do we mitigate the harm mm-hmm. while these things still exist as we know that the climate keeps changing faster and faster. Mm-hmm. We right. have to address that gap. Mm-hmm. So- I think as a way to transition towards like the more superstructure mm-hmm. legislative type uh, stuff, I, I, I just want to midpoint like thank you because uh, just like the language that you use is so effective and you, you almost with every example, every point you make, you are also like uplifting or amplifying or illuminating things that like are invisibilized or often in the shadows of like erased, our consciousness yeah. and erased as we're thinking about the, even for those of us who are concerned. Um which I assume most people who click on this, <laughs> right? And just, I even, I mean, there's even like a straw man of this like other side. Like I think humanity is concerned and our state is just like impeding our ability to mm-hmm. to adapt. Well, and defining who who they're concerned about is, right. the, is the question, right? Right, 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 right. How we are concerned. It's like, who are your people? So, so you know, we've intersected and I've also just used it as parallel for like my questioning framework of, you know, the, the movement against carceral violence and and the abolitionist framework of that. So I'm curious, what are people who are doing EJ work Mm -hmm. um, not getting for Mm -hmm. the most part, right? Like where are you seeing gaps in language or consciousness? So for example, whenever I hear someone as well-intended as they may be, as well-resourced, as well-researched as they may be, Mm -hmm. when I hear someone say they're doing criminal justice reform work, 
I usually know that they don't get it and they're going to have a lot of premises that are short-sighted and limited. And there may be benefit to that. We can work together. There's no shade. There's no, like, you're not my enemy, obviously, yeah. right? Like, we are in this work together. Someone you, just got real embarrassed. You, <laughs> you, should, you know, not embarrassed, it but like, challenge yourself. Yeah. Words mean something Yeah, you don't understand yeah. the real harm of this system. Yeah. If, one, you are uplifting the language of criminal justice, if you're thinking that all we need to do right. is make it not as bad, they need more books, they need, you know, yeah. Um, like, yeah. yeah. So I, I think we get the, like, the, the context. So for folks who are doing environmental justice work, I assume mm-hmm. there are well-intended, well-resourced, mm-hmm. well-positioned places um, that probably, for your liking, <laughs> yeah. have limits in their their understanding and their consciousness. So like lovingly so, what are the, the type of expansions that you see are needed in the lexicon yeah. as we are approaching the state and as we are approaching industry and corporations? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are a couple of things. One, I think, and this is something that's really difficult in the environmental justice movement, as it is in many other movements for justice, there's a big generational gap between folks who started doing this work in the 70s and 80s, um, who rightly, you know, are elders in the work and have established their perspectives, and the perspectives of people who are young people coming up now. You know, I think the sense of possibility about what's possible, about what kinds of strategies we should be pursuing, there's a gap there. Mm. And it, it comes from a very real place, right? Uh, the contexts in which people were operating in the 70s, 80s, early 90s are very different than the context that we're operating now, even though you have the same bad actors under sometimes different names and mm. conglomerations yeah. perpetuating the same stuff. Um, I think young people more frequently are interested in trying to figure out, okay, we accept we have to mitigate harm right now, but also like we have big visions for what kind of depth of transformation we want to see. And the way that you mitigate harm, the menu of those options is a lot bigger Mm. than the sort of menu that folks were, were using earlier on. Is there a particular language that is used that usually limits that menu? Yeah. Are there buzzwords I mean, that you hear that you're like, uh-oh, let's, let's maybe I mean, absolutely. I, you know, and, and what's interesting is, to me, it also breaks down around power, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like even within movements, you get folks who have accumulated power at some point, you know? And at some point, that can also lead some of those folks in power to forget what it was like to be without it. You know, and to really think, okay, I can intervene in these places from my place of power. And like, we might still not be getting the best outcome, but like, we're mitigating some harm. And that's important. Mm But also, what does it mean for people without that power to intervene? I think it's like in a different point of the process often. Mm -hmm. It's using different tactics. Mm -hmm. It's more confrontational. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more direct action. The demands are just different. And and. I think that sometimes there's a sense that young people, oh, they just don't know, Mm. you know, like that's never going to happen. Like this kind (laughs) of like thinking that's like dismissive of the ask when actually young people are super freaking smart and know like, okay, maybe that's unlikely. We're still going to ask for it because that'll push the entire conversation way further in the direction that we needed to go than it would have been if we started over here with this sort of like could be effective on some level intervention, but it's not going to deliver the kind of transformation in the conversation that we want to see, the transformation in like what terms we are using Mm. to talk about like we want deep justice here. We want to be not just getting to a place where we're stopping people from doing a few bad things. We want to stop them from doing those things. We want to prevent other people from doing those things. And we also want to be doing good Good things ourselves, right? (laughs) Right. It's like a totally different degree. Crazy. Right? It's a different degree. (laughs) And so it's just something we have to recognize, right? And I think sometimes folks with a lot of established power get get scared about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether it's, you know, coming from a like well-intentioned place, whether it's this like sort of paternalistic edge, right? About Mm -hmm. like who gets to own the work, who gets to call it what it is. Um, Aside, it's it's a consequential difference. Yeah. 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 And I think there might even be like, and we're trying to get more into this bag, but like there might be even like a spiritual Mm -hmm. gap there in the sense of, you know, that's not going to happen. It's like, no, Pops, it's not going to happen in your lifetime, right? right? Like we could make this happen and we are invested beyond time and space, I think, in a lot of right. a lot of these movement right. focuses of we are also thinking about future generations mm-hmm. in a way that like uh, an executive might not be, right. right? Like they're thinking about their bottom line or their outcome or right. their cycle. That's right. Um, well, it's, so, yeah. it's like that, um, the idea of that when you, uh, like you plant for seven generations ahead of you. Uh, mm-hmm. This idea of like 
this isn't for you. Right. I, I was talking to this guy who was talking about like knowing that you're going to need to cut down a tree at some point. Make sure that there's a tree equally that tall when you cut that one down. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that then the next time that yeah. person has the time to grow a tree to that height, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's this this understanding of kind of the cyclical nature of that, that mm-hmm. I think to what you're talking about, about like, yeah, no, I'm not going to see the tree get that tall. Yeah. And I think that that comes out of other types of movement work also. Yeah. It can help with that. But I'm still connected to it, even right. if it's not physical. Right. You know? That's yeah. right. All right. So let's, what, what's going on? Like, <laughs> let's get our into, biggest question. Yeah, no, but let's get into you know a little bit of the like the contemporary fights or or work or advocacy mm-hmm. that you're trying to do because I always feel limited in like what is happening on a legislative side, whether it's on a city level, county level, state level, and pretty much all of my interest. You know, I have like these really deep thoughts that I bring. And like, I don't know what happened last month at the meeting, right? Mm -hmm. And so- So what happened last month at the meeting? (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, there's so, there's so much happening. I'll start at the sort of hyper-local level. Please. In Little Village, we are still fighting against Hilco Global, who bought the former Crawford coal plant site and is- um, deep in plans. It's it's partway done with the demolition now, which has had a lot of problems, including the death of a community member mm. on the site due to substandard safety practices. Oh, no. um, they now have a tenant. That tenant is Target. Mm-hmm. That's something that we're watching really carefully and working to uh, to push, right? Because Hilco has been an absentee landlord in the words of Edith Tovar, one of uh, my wonderful friends and colleagues, and they just have not updated the community. They've been like MIA. They're endangering their workers. Yeah. Um, and now they've cut this deal. And so the the play is we have to understand the dynamics of what that would be like mm-hmm. um, for Target to have a huge distribution That's facility. What I was gonna it's, not a, it's not for a retail space. No, the it's not for retail. It's for, it's for uh, like warehousing, yeah. trucking, more diesel pollution, okay. right, right, in the same part of the neighborhood. And... Um, Connected to that, the discount mall that's on 26th Street, it's mm-hmm. also a really big site, also just got bought and sold. Mm-hmm. And there, um, we've heard now that they're courting big retailers, including potentially Target, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the way that these pieces are connected is something that folks are watching on the ground and already organizing around. The community mm-hmm. is extremely concerned, both about the pollution and about gentrification. Yeah. The sort of policy struggles there are like all the different permitting and siting processes that right. these two sites have gone through. Um, it's about the Hilco Corporation getting a $19.7 million tax break from on their Cook County property taxes mm. due to something that was passed through city council. Um, and it connects to this larger joint struggle across a lot of different movement organizations and communities about why are city and county dollars going to companies that are oppressing and killing people slowly and have you know, not a care about the neighborhoods that they cite in. Right. Like, why is that constantly happening? Why did it happen with Lincoln Yards? Why is it happening with um, the construction of potentially a Target warehouse? I mean, we know it's going to be a million square foot warehouse. That's the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the and- largest single site warehouse in the city in the neighborhood of the largest single site jail in the country right. doesn't seem like an accident to me. Yeah. Right. It's like, that's what they allocate that space right. for. It's exactly. not for people. It's for warehousing. Exactly. Just- and we have, you know, we have great support from folks like the warehouse workers for justice who are like, we need to hold these communities who exploit their workers accountable. Cause it's not like the jobs that are in these facilities right. are good jobs yeah. for those right. workers. Right. Um, and that's something that we heard from the company time and time again. The workforce in Little Village is sticky. They like to work close to home. They, right? Mm-hmm. And that this is from a, a person playing identity politics, you know, a Latinx man who's saying, like, we when it's convenient and they when it's not, right? Mm. Um, and mm. so just a flag about how that works in these situations. Yeah, check for people we's and they's. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and we see we see these facilities coming in all over the city. So we have neighborhoods banding together to fight. Like, what are the policy loopholes that allowed this? Yeah. Why are some of these plan manufacturing districts allowing certain kinds of activities to be permitted by right. You know, why is Mad Asphalt able to expand in McKinley Park and out of their permit violating left and right? And um, and people are like breathing in toxic fumes as they're waking up in the morning. Right. Why is the Southeast side seeing, again, the metal shredding situation when they're already dealing with manganese, a neurotoxin, right? right? Why are we seeing this happen again and again? So addressing that at the policy level is going to take reform of our city zoning and planning code. Mm. You know, why was the city able to cite 
the COP Academy right, right next to Orr High School in another planned manufacturing district mm. because public safety is permitted by right. The same mm. code that allows the polluters to do that. So we have to be addressing mm. that part of the city code. There's yeah. no way we prevent this from happening until we change that. Mm. Can, can you just restate the, the code again? Yeah, the planned manufacturing district plan. table in the city zoning code. There are these areas, again, that have a bound around them that have sort of been highlighted as, as places to right. preserve manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yet, they're being used for all these other things. Right. Right? And in that in that case, for example, the planned manufacturing district around Orr High School was drawn as a square. Mm-hmm. And with a little notch cut out on the corner so that when you deal with the district, you're not talking about the fact that there's a majority black high school right on that corner, mm-hmm. right outside the boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that persists in a lot of these situations where the way that the decisions are made, they look at the site itself. They're not looking at everything around the site. They're not looking at the cumulative impacts of all the different kinds of social vulnerabilities and right. pollution markers that are consequential for why that site should or shouldn't be the thing that they're making a decision on. Right. And yet again, there's that's, a huge problem there. That's rooted in that domination and violence of the land, Absolutely. right? This idea that you can parcel and that the implications of this lot don't have implications right. on the people and the land around it. Right. Um, the air doesn't stop. The water doesn't stop, right? There's, the soil doesn't, the soil it, doesn't what passes end. through, you know. In, yeah. in addition to that biological, you know, environmental violence, mm-hmm. the, the, the political economy violence of it all, of $20 million tax discount to a well-resourced corporate institution while raising those same property taxes and displacing thousands right. of families right. per year. Right. <sighs> That's right. And neighbors just want to hold on to their places, right? Man. They just want to stay in their communities. Yeah. You don't have 10,000 Latinx people leave Pilsen just because, mm-hmm. right? right? It's This is not an accident. Yeah. So we're right. seeing this happen left and right in different neighborhoods on the South and Southwest side. And I think the struggles around environmental injustice and affordability and racial justice mm-hmm. are inextricably linked. And and more and more so you see more cross-movement building because it's like the, it's the same <laughs> pattern of decision-making that's producing all these different yeah. consequences. At the state, you're seeing something similar, right? The same patterns we see in Chicago are replicated in communities throughout the state. You know, I think about the coal plants in black communities in Peoria, right? They just want a historic settlement hmm. um, for the closures of some of those plants. You know, it's going to be interesting to see, did that strategy work to deliver justice to the mm-hmm. people most impacted in that situation, mm-hmm. right? Um We're seeing this in a whole bunch of plants in southern Illinois that are in historically poor white communities that just shut down. Um, And Mm. there's a coal mine, too, that shut down and a bunch of people are out of work, right? Mm. There wasn't a plan for the just transition of these communities that the communities got to lead. So that's something we're fighting for at the state. It's like there needs to be a way that we are proactively planning for this transition in energy Mm -hmm. and in other types of polluting coming offline such that communities get the tax base back, that the companies themselves are the ones having to pay, that workers and social services and public schools get to stay open because they're not going to lose the profit from the plant and then have to just immediately have an emergency because right. they don't have basic income to get textbooks. Right. That's like not a situation that we we need to allow. So yeah. like while we're trying to clean up the environment and slow down climate change, we have to have planning and real meaningful policies for these neighborhoods to be able to survive situations like this. Mm. Is, is there is there any push to, to um, shift consciousness around... The, the, the place and position of manufacturing, because for so much of like our 20th century imagination, mm-hmm. the manufacturer was the hero of our society, mm-hmm. right? Like that is mm-hmm. where community was based around. And as deindustrialization has occurred, mm-hmm. it has been named as this like great loss and injury yeah. that, oh, the, the, the plants went away and now we are all struggling and suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that being people's consciousness, it feels really hard mm-hmm. to then get people to understand that even if they are providing jobs that probably aren't sustaining people in the mm-hmm. way that they need it is destroying our lives right. our environments our bodies in a way that may not be as immediately visible that's right how do we you might not have the answer but what what is the work or what is your thinking around how we shift people's thinking around manufacturing as this like heroic need that we all depend on mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. One, I think we have to acknowledge the meaning that that and that industries generally have had for folks as families. Yeah. So I think on one hand, it's not acceptable for folks who are not directly impacted to come into communities and say, 
you have to not care about this, even right. though you, your father, your sibling, your sibling's cousin, your sibling's cousin's parents, veterinarian, everybody <laughs> worked in this plant at some point. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's just a reality. Right. We have to contend with that. And we can't, especially people who come from urban places, can't show up in rural places and be like, we know what y'all are about. Right. And we can tell you that it's immoral to care about this, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, I think it starts from a place of trying to understand the specific cultural context of each of these facilities yeah. and to make sure that any processes that we develop allow for the community themselves to control right. what happens. Right. Um, and sometimes that looks like a shift to manufacturing, but for different industries that do it better and do it mm. cleaner. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that looks like moving completely away from something that has to do with manufacturing or even just like generation of energy, um, which is not traditionally thought of as manufacturing, but has manufacturing like supply chain implications. Right, all those parts and mm -hmm. pieces and transportation exactly. and logistics and all that. Yeah. And just like to, to respect that people know what they need. Right. Um, and to give, give, through process and resourcing the ability for that to happen in a way that's tailored to each of these places. Um, and, you know, some of the sort of climate struggles are connected to this, right? It's like as we're promoting alternative energy, like solar, wind, um, as we're thinking about de-dieselifying mm -hmm. the transportation industry and we're electrifying, right? Um, where are all of those things coming from? Right. Who's making them? How are they being disposed of, right. right? Asking these bigger questions about the entire life cycle of something, not just the product in the moment that it's made, but mm -hmm. what happens when they extract something all the way to what happens when they dispose of something and sort of shifting mindset around that because yeah. there are opportunities, I think, to clean that entire thing up, the entire life cycle up, but also different opportunities for folks to get meaningful work in different parts right. of that life cycle um, and for that work to still be dignifying and to still be like, family sustaining and affirming work and not let's sort of exploit <laughs> your labor. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, you know, pay you really well. And in other cases, pay you very menially because, right. you know, one of the, I think, misconceptions folks have around coal plant work is that, for example, it's all unionized right. and that everybody's making a good wage. It's like only a subset of those workers right. are making good wage. They also have professional service workers, quote unquote, um, who is my friend Tracy Fox from the Central Illinois Healthy Communities Alliance likes to say is now in her day was called temp work. Yeah. <laughs> you also have those folks working in the plant, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, and they temp work, work is just work. <laughs> it's just Yeah. Yeah. It's, everything's temporary. Right. Yeah, it's the gig economy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like started We're all going to go someday. In, it's all temporary. In these Everybody's places. a temp. <laughs> yeah. And so that's that's a sort of transition. It's like we have to take a realistic assessment of what's happening in places and allow these communities to respond themselves and to choose like yes, we want to have this kind of a transition and for that transition to be just, it looks this way here mm -hmm. as opposed to this is what a just transition looks like generally um, and to expect that it be the same everywhere. Yeah. I think we have principles, right, right. of what we want to see. Right. Um, but one of those principles, a really important principle, is that the community needs to decide. Right. Yeah. So you, you've alluded to so much that we'll answer this question throughout this conversation, but I want to just give the opportunity to kind of earmark it. For people doing uh, the work of reshaping our energy system, for people doing the work of climate justice, for people working in institutions that are trying to reimagine what this work looks like, for moving from that specific, we are changing this product, to we are holistically changing the way we relate to our environment, each other, and the world. What reminders would you want them to carry with them? I think there are a few things. One thing that strikes me is that I think a gap across all movements that don't directly center disability justice, mm, I think we need to be taking several pages and really listening to disability justice leaders about mm. what's needed in these moments because our movements have been exclusionary, have not centered access or justice around folks' lived realities and, in, and as a consequence, the things that we create are, again, exclusionary. Right. And I think when we're trying to make these decisions, you know, I think about environmental justice communities as also the sites where you have a lot of people who identify as disabled, who are managing multiple chronic medical conditions, mm -hmm. lots of mental health consequences of pollution, right. which, of which depression, anxiety, suicidality are included in that list. 
And we're not talking about these things as in an integrated way. And I think that that absolutely needs to change because there's no social issue that we work on that does not have a direct consequence for folks who are disability justice minded and who are surviving these issues themselves. Um, And I think about what happens in climate emergencies, what happens around the coronavirus is the people who are the the most structurally vulnerable are also the people who are rescuing the rest of us from Mm -hmm. ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And I think about the example, for example, about the wildfires in California, where you had Jay Redwoods and Cassandra Williams forming Mask Oakland to straight up gather N95 masks themselves Mm -hmm. to give to people because the city was like, we have to deal with all this other stuff. And then folks who are living with respiratory disabilities and other kinds of immunosuppressed situations, like, we'll get to you, right? right? That is not enough. People cannot survive day to day without that. And so folks literally mobilize themselves to collect masks to distribute to people. You know, organizers on the ground are seeing, right, how the government is really mishandling Mm the situation and are saying, this is going to come here. This is what this is going to look like. These are the demands we already need to have. These are the strategies we already need to have when this comes here to protect folks who are street-based, to protect folks with a disability, to protect elders, to protect other people who are dealing with immunosuppressant therapies or having to choose between, do I stop my medication to reduce my risk to catching this disease versus um, getting other kinds of societal protection, right? right? That's the leadership we should be taking, I think, in moments of crisis because folks who are at the structural margins are the ones who've been surviving and mitigating harm from the state. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of leadership we need to take across all of our movements, right? Um, And in these moments, as the climate keeps changing, and 95 masks are coming back up, right? People have been buying them up. And so people who need them to survive don't have access to them. That's not cool, right? We We have to make sure that we're not in this sort of individual survivalist way of thinking. And we start thinking about how our community is going to make it through this. How do we deal with the inevitability, right? That folks will catch something, that folks will be in a state where there's fire, where there's storms, and how do we hold each other down? And I think disability justice movements, because of the way that they think about these things on an everyday basis, it's like in the DNA of, of what folks are thinking about are really folks that we the rest of us need to take humble lessons from um, and make sure that we're following as we try and mitigate climate, as we try and respond to situations like this, right? When folks are dismissive of the severity of, of consequences, it's like that's an ableist thing to do. And there was this, um, this great quote by... Um, Leah Lakshmi Peepsna Samara Sinha that that literally said, people with disabled knowledge are using it to save everybody. Mm. And I think we need mm. to really think about that as we continue to face deeper and more complex problems because that's been true historically and it's going to continue to be true. So that's something I wanted to make sure to say. Um, I think the other thing that I want to lift up in this moment is changing things at this scale is a team sport. No one person, no one community, no one series of individuals is going to be able to affect the kind of change that we need. And you have to have some rules about how you play that team sport. So as you're trying to build toward this work, like really making sure that it's really clear what scenarios are you going to be facing together? Do you have values that you're aligned around? How can you use those values to guide the decision making when things get really hard and you're having to make exchanges that folks are not comfortable with? How can you make sure to let decision-making be as open and transparent and democratic as it can be? Um, And I mean that in the sense of like every person gets to weigh in. Yeah, That's just so important in problems of these scales because otherwise what you essentially have is like the folks that are able to, through strategy, through organizing, get access, end up making executive decisions on behalf of everyone else. And that's not really an acceptable way to do things. Um, So you need to be thinking about those joint decision-making. You'd be thinking about collectivism, all that stuff way earlier than it gets to that point. Hmm. And I think that some folks think, well, my job is really like delivering these performance pieces (laughs) over here and making sure that this piece gets connected here. But actually, that's something you should be doing in every job Mm. that has any sort of social consequence. Now, I'd argue every job has a social (laughs) consequence. Um, So do you know what I'm saying? And I think that that's something specific to this work, but also could be broadly applied, you know, to other kinds of work. And that's really important to me is to make sure that, like, especially as we're dealing with policies, especially when we're dealing with decision making about people's future, 
we have to hold ourselves to the highest standard about making sure that we're really taking people's input seriously. Mm-hmm. And we're making sure to fight for that, even if it's not our idea, that mm-hmm. we fight for the idea that the community wants. We fight for the things that folks have said, this is the consequential moment for us. Mm-hmm. And we have to hold ourselves, I think, as people who organize, as people who have have a care about the future of society and our neighbors to the highest standard and not just take shortcuts when the power is really close. I think it's just so easy to do that. Mm. Even when you're well-intentioned and you're like, but I know it's right. You can't take that shortcut though. Don't do it. Don't do it. Stop yourself, people. You know what I'm saying? It's so easy. Check in with folks, you know, (laughs) don't sort of play the intermediary unless you've been specifically empowered to do that. And folks have a sense of who you represent. Who are you accountable to? Make sure you're clear on that before you're out here making decisions. Um, And I think that this is, Again, so important, especially in spaces where the consequences of these decisions will have impacts on millions of people, all the way down to will have impacts on like your five neighbors. That was amazing. That was some good stuff. Shout out to Juliana for coming through and sharing so much brilliance. Not only do I feel like informed and enlightened, I was also moved in some very real ways. Some of the things that she was sharing um, that makes the impact so tangible um, actually like got emotional for me. So thank you so much, Liana, for coming through and sharing all your light with us. You can connect to Elvejo's work on social media at L-V-E-J-O. Make sure that you subscribe, comment, rate, and review this Climate Changemakers podcast. Tell a friend, tell an enemy, let the people know. Stand on the street corner and just tell people, hey, I got this podcast y'all should be listening to. Be our street team is what we're asking. You can find us at Ergo Radio on all social media platforms and anywhere you find podcasts, just search in Ergo and check us out. We'll be back next month with another conversation showcasing the ways that climate change makers are putting people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. Much love to the land and people. Peace.